0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 152, The Treaty of Paris, 1763. It's now been a full 10 years since George Washington stumbled onto the world stage. How on earth do we make sense of everything that's happened since? Iroquois influence over the Indians of the Ohio Valley started to decline. This helped lead to the British and French... Wait, wait, sorry, got my notes mixed up there. Wrong Treaty of Paris. Let's try that again. Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 152, The Treaty of Paris, 1783. It's now been a full 20 years since Britain settled in to rule over her newly acquired North American colonies. How on earth do we make sense of everything that's happened since? When I first started this series of episodes on the War of American Independence, I made the point that I believed American independence was inevitable. It's something I believed when I started this podcast six years ago, and it's something I still believe now, and I hope I've been able to persuade you of this over our time together. The main reason, which I've said so often that I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, is the lessons from the Glorious Revolution about parliamentary sovereignty. Did parliamentary sovereignty mean that landowning men had a right to participate in their government, no taxation without representation, or that the English, and later British, Parliament at Westminster, had the sovereignty to do whatever it wanted in areas under British dominion? The answer to that question really depended on whether or not the person answering it was from the home island or from the colonies, though neither Brit nor American was aware of that. The American colonies were largely left to their own devices throughout the first half of the 18th century, and the budding aristocracy of Virginia and Massachusetts had no reason to question their rights as Englishmen. But a small dispute in the Ohio Valley turned into the Seven Years' War and changed everything. The British were forced to deal with their American colonies and found that they had developed a will of their own. They had their own interests and policies that they wished to follow. The British could try and force their will upon the Americans, but they would get a lot further through cooperation and partnership. A few British statesmen were able to learn this, such as Pitt the Elder, but most weren't. The political leadership of Britain failed to conceive of anything different to parliamentary sovereignty, and this lack of imagination led them to making the same mistake over and over again throughout the 1760s and 1770s. Whether it was through the Stamp Act or the Tea Act, Westminster constantly tried to tax the Americans to cover the debts of the Seven Years' War. Had the British given the American colonies the right to raise taxes, and request sums to cover imperial defence, the American Revolution would have likely never happened. But if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. The realistic truth, given everything we know about the British Empire, is that the British would never relinquish their position of power unless they had no option. They were never going to give the Americans the rights the Americans felt they were owed unless they had no other option, and if they had no other option, then the Americans would be in a powerful enough position that they didn't need the British. Equally, the Americans had inherited the same obstinacy, and they were never going to compromise on their rights. All it would take for American independence is enough provocation that the Americans refused to accept the overlordship of Britain, and North America was a continent on the other side of the Atlantic. The British could not forcibly control America if America did not want to be controlled. Again, this was understood by some at the time, such as Pitt, but too few in the British High Command would listen. Eventually, the powder keg in Massachusetts was ignited at Lexington and Concord, and the situation escalated to its inevitable conclusion. Neither the Americans nor British would back down on principle, ultimately driving the Americans to their only rational choice, declaring independence. Meanwhile, the British would attempt to subdue the 13 colonies, but soon found themselves unequal to the task. They were pushed out of their early base at Boston, and had only the resources to control a limited area, initially New York and areas of the surrounding colonies, and later in the war some areas of the south. It seemed probable that the war would drag on for years until the british finally gave up but two events managed to speed up the process the first of these was allied help for the americans principally the french but also the spanish and dutch who forced the british to change their priorities they had to defend the home islands as well as islands in the caribbean with fewer resources going to north america it was only natural the british would give up sooner It's possible the war could have lasted into the 1780s, but Clinton and Cornwallis managed to trap a British army at Yorktown and destroy the British war effort in 1781. That's just about where we finished up last time. So, what happened next? To deal first with London, the reported reaction to Yorktown from Lord North was, Oh God, it's all over. It's debatable whether he actually said this, but it certainly captures the mood. North's ministry ended, with him being forced from power along with Lord George Germain and the Earl of Sandwich. The Peace Party was brought to power, led by the Marquess of Rockingham. You'll remember that the Rockinghamites had been a thorn in the side of North's ministry for years. The American War became a ceasefire, although conflicts against the European empires continued into 1782. The role of the European states would be incredibly important in the peace process, as alliances soon began to fracture. The easiest to crumble was that of Spain and the United States. The Americans would naturally look westwards, putting them into conflict with the Spanish Empire, while the Spanish wanted to prolong the conflict between Britain and America by leaving the issue of independence unresolved. Congress sent John Jay to Spain to try and resolve potential conflicts, but he was not treated as a serious ambassador by the Spanish, instead as a nuisance. In their efforts to secure an alliance with Spain, Jay was instructed to offer a very high price, that the Americans would relinquish the right to navigate the lower Mississippi. The Spanish refused the offer, which was great news for America. They didn't need the Spanish alliance and Jay travelled to Paris in May 1782. Jay had learnt much from his two years in Madrid, including that the French would not support America if American interests clashed with those of Spain. Vigen may have encouraged France to join the war, but it was principally to injure Britain. Promises could be made to Spain that were opposed to guarantees made to the Americans if it meant that Spain would join the war against the British. As the war progressed, Vigenne was forced to confront the reality that the war was bankrupting France and couldn't long be continued. Vigenne started to make moves towards a truce, attempting to take advantage of an offer by Austria and Russia to broker a peace settlement. But John Adams wouldn't agree to this unless Austria and Russia recognised the independence of the United States first. Vigène abandoned this idea, but the experience taught Adams to not have excessive faith in France, just as Jay was learning a similar lesson in Spain. Over 1781, it did seem that peace was nearing. Congress created a commission comprised of Adams, Franklin, Jay, Jefferson, and Henry Lawrence. Lawrence was captured while crossing the Atlantic, and Jefferson declined the role after the death of his wife. This left Franklin, Adams, and Jay to negotiate the settlement, with Franklin taking a leading role. During early 1782, Franklin held informal conversations with the British, who attempted to persuade Franklin that the French were an unreliable ally and that the Anglo-American relationship didn't need to be completely spoiled because of the revolution. Franklin opened separate talks with the British, which Vigen went along with under the provision that the talks be combined into the same treaty. Congress instructed the Commission to keep the French updated about the nature of the ongoing discussions, but Franklin declined to do so. The conversations centred around maintaining the Franco-American alliance and America having full independence, but on the understanding that the relationship with Great Britain could be rebuilt over time. However, They didn't progress much beyond conversations until July 1782, when Rockingham died and was replaced by Shelburne. While Shelburne was opposed to American independence, he was an old friend of Franklin. The British ambassadors were replaced, and talks resumed in August. The Americans requested independence, the ceding of Canada, fishing rights, compensation for American property which had been destroyed in the war, free trade between Britain and America, and for Britain to take blame for the war. The British agreed to enter formal negotiations with the Americans, but wouldn't recognise independence unless there was a peace with all parties involved in the conflict. This shocked the Americans, who went to Végennes and found him unconcerned about whether independence was recognised before the peace or in the treaty. This further spooked the peace commissioners, now very suspicious, of Spain and France. Then came the final straw. Jay had spent years trying to resolve the question of the Mississippi with Spain, and had made a very generous offer to cede access to the Spanish portion. The Spanish now insisted they receive Florida and a large portion of the area between the Appalachians, the Great Lakes, and the Mississippi. The Americans opposed this, and the Spanish came back with a compromise they claimed Vigen would be happy with. But the area between the Ohio and the Great Lakes remained British. An Indian reserve under Spanish hegemony would be placed from the mouth of the Cumberland River to the edge of Florida. The Spanish ambassador secretly left for London, and Jay was able to draw the conclusion the Spanish and French trying to block the americans well two could play at that game jay and franklin laid out a stripped back version of their demands what they needed were fishing rights in newfoundland and access to the mississippi they wouldn't even need immediate recognition of independence as long as the ambassadors conducting the negotiations were instructed to deal with the united states of america instead of colonies or plantations they would even sign a separate peace deal and give the British free commercial access to Trans While this was going on, the British had separately concluded that they needed to ask Parliament to grant independence immediately. But the American offer provided a convenient alternative. The change to the wording for the negotiators was agreed on September 19th, 1782. From here, Negotiations between the British and Americans moved rapidly, and a preliminary treaty was agreed by October 8th, which would become final when the British and French agreed a peace. However, the war around the world with the French, Spanish and Dutch was going well for the British, and some changes were requested by Sheldon. The Americans were to get Ontario in the original treaty, but now this would be part of Canada. They should promise that private debts of Americans to British citizens would be paid, as would compensation for Loyalist losses. Changes to the frontier in Florida were made, although this was largely irrelevant as Florida was ceded to Spain in 1783. The clause securing free trade between the Americans and British was removed, The Americans agreed to most of this, but not to compensation for Loyalists. This was instead modified so that Congress should recommend that the individual states should compensate Loyalists. The British approved this, and the treaty was signed on November 30th, 1782. Franklin managed to smooth over this with the French, who, along with the Spanish, signed preliminary agreements with Britain in January 1783. There was a ceasefire, and the Treaty of Paris was signed on September 3rd, 1783. That winter, the British evacuated New York, and Washington entered the city. He remained there briefly, before meeting congress at Annapolis, where he resigned as commander-in-chief. Spain managed to take some minor territorial gains. France had managed to tear apart Britain's North American Empire although it paid dearly for it and was now well on the way to its own revolution. Britain had lost America, but would maintain strong trade links and was positioned to expand into India, creating a new empire on the ashes of the old. But these really aren't of interest to us anymore. We are done with Europe as a major centre of our narrative. Now, six years after I started this podcast, And 152 episodes later, we have an independent United States of America. The newly born United States faced a difficult world. But thanks to the skilled negotiating of Franklin, Adams and Jay, it was well placed to seize every opportunity that came its way. These early troubled years are exactly what we should jump into as the series progresses. And we move towards the next seminal moment, the ratification of the Constitution in 1789. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.